The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment. Again, follow the program at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts there as well as on Spotify and iTunes. You uh, can also follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Uh, we begin on the program with Rod Rosenstein's testimony, Rosenstein, Stein, Stein, Rosenstein's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. Rather remarkable uh, and telling, as uh, Eli Lake wrote in Bloomberg. If you uh, thought the uh, FBI looked bad before Rod Rosenstein's testimony, going down, the most important exchanges for my money were between Rosenstein and Senator Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the committee. Uh, There were some entertaining exchanges, Ted Cruz suggesting that Rosenstein was either complicit or grossly negligent. My suggestion, probably more the the latter than the former. But uh, Graham did a good job per his legal training like Cruz, and just walking Rosenstein down on all of the particular issues of what he knew, what he did, who he relied on, what he thinks now of the people he relied on. So let's begin. If you knew now, or if you knew then, I should say, what you know now, would you have uh, signed off on the surveillance warrant? If you knew then what you know now, would you have signed the warrant application? No, I would not. And the reason you wouldn't have is because Mr. Horowitz found that its sculptural information was withheld from the court. Is that correct? Among other reasons, yes. Yeah, and somebody actually altered an email. Correct. Right, right. So there were 17 violations that Mr. Horowitz found, but I can't stress enough to the country that he found the most egregious of all. The dossier was the only reason the Carter Page warrant was issued to begin with. In January 2017, the man who provided Steele with all the information told the FBI it was a bunch of garbage and they used it twice more. Hmm. What kind of country is this? What happens to people who do that? Did you know that? You didn't know that, did you? No, sir. Did you know that uh, man who cobbled together the information for the Steele dossier told the FBI it was all garbage? Did you know? No, I didn't. The FBI did. They used it twice after the fact anyway. And it also speaks to the rubber stamp that Department of Justice provided for these uh, surveillance warrant applications, much like the rubber stamp the FISA court provides in granting them. And we'll get to that in a second. But so Rosenstein didn't know. What about McCabe? Direct report to Rosenstein, point person for Crossfire Hurricane. Do you think McCabe knew that? I, I hope not, Senator. I do not personally know. Was he in charge of the investigation? Yes, he was. Did he ever lie to you? Mr. McCabe, uh, I don't believe, Senator, that uh, there are any occasions in which I identify that he lied to me. Okay. Did he ever say anything, looking back, that is perplexing to you? Uh, well, that's a very broad question, Senator. I had a lot of conversations. Do you think he was truthful to you? Uh, well, I believed, Senator, that Mr. McCabe was not fully candid with me. He certainly wasn't forthcoming. Uh, you know, in particular, Senator, the, with regard to uh, Mr. Comey's memoranda, of his interviews with the president and with regard to the FBI's suspicions about the president. Uh, Mr. McCabe did not reveal those to me uh, for at least a week after he became acting director, despite the fact that we had repeated conversations focusing on this investigation. And uh, for whatever reasons, Mr. McCabe was not forthcoming with me about that. He has subsequently said publicly uh, in, in public comments he's made 
about the investigation that uh, his team had been leading up to certain important decisions for some time. Uh, from my perspective, Senator, they'd been in conducting this investigation for, I believe, approximately nine months. Indeed. And here's the thing about the uh, Durham investigation. McCabe, clearly a target of that investigation for criminality. And I don't know if they'll be able to make out a case against McCabe or not. But he has to be a target. And if there is a governing federal statute for McCabe's conduct, then he has to be prosecuted. Because how else does the Department of Justice set the precedent or reset the precedent that should have already been enforced that FBI has to be candid with Department of Justice, the acting attorney general and the acting FBI director? Graham went on about other things that Rosenstein didn't know that perhaps he should have known, should have been apprised of, should have asked about the evidence against General Flynn to pursue surveillance. Evidence existed that General Flynn was colluding with the Russians in 2017, May of 2017. I, I can't comment about the case center beyond what's in Did you know that in January the 4th, 2017, the FBI field office said, we recommend that General Flynn be removed from Crossfire Hurricane? No, I did not. Okay. Would that have mattered if you had known that? Yes. It seems like it would matter, yeah. January 4th, FBI recommends he be removed. Peter Strzok comes in and overrules. Rosenstein didn't know. Papadopoulos. Did you know this about George Papadopoulos? Okay. Did you know that they had recordings of Mr. Papadopoulos somewhere overseas saying, no, I never worked with the Russians. Worse to the effect that if the campaign did, that would be treason. Did you know that existed? No, I did not. No, I did not. Graham, uh, summarizing the overriding point here. So the point is, when you made this appointment, the people named in it, there's zero evidence they were working with the Russians. Zero. And this went on for two years. $25 million and people had their lives turned upside down. That General Flynn, in January the 4th, 2017, the FBI agents who'd been looking at him said they recommended he be dropped, and our good old buddy struck, said, no, the seventh floor wants to look at him. If you had known that, would you ask more questions? Yes. When you're talking about uh, the possible surveillance, my follow-up, the possible surveillance of an incoming presidential administration and uh, senior officials, would-be senior officials like National Security Advisor, do you think you should be a little bit more intellectually curious before you're authorizing FBI surveillance of said individuals? More, A little bit more concerned about the quality of the evidence or the existence of any? How does Rod Rosenstein now view his uh, scope memo of August of that year, August of 2017, and the appointment of the special prosecutor and the choice of Bob Mueller? Knowing what you know now, do you have any reservations about uh, making the Mueller appointment, given the fact that all the people named in this scope letter, there's like zero evidence by January May 2017, they were working with the Russians. Do you have any concerns at all? I think, Senator, there are two issues. The first is whether the investigation was appropriate, and the second is whether it was appropriate to assign it to Mr. Mueller. And the decision that I made, obviously, was based on the information I had at the time. You need to make I, I'm not arguing with you about time. assigning it to Mueller. I'm saying, was there a legitimate reason to believe that any of the people named in this letter were actively working with the Russians in August 2017? In August 2017. That's when you signed the memo. My understanding, Senator, was that there there was. What is it? Suspicion. What was it? Based in. And now, again, Senator, the, the, the investigation is concluded. 
And these people were not conspiring with the Russians. Uh, the information available at the time included... Well, why do we have the Mueller investigation at all if we had concluded they weren't working with the Russians? I don't believe we had concluded it at that time. So. I'm saying in January the 4th, 2017, the FBI had discounted Flynn. There was no evidence that Carter Page worked with the Russians. The dossier was a bunch of garbage. And Papadopoulos is all over the place, not knowing he's being recorded denying working with the Russians. Nobody's ever been prosecuted for working with the Russians. The point is, the whole concept that the campaign was colluding with the Russians, there was no there there in August 2017. Do you agree with that general statement or not? I agree with that general statement. Thank you. There was no there there in August 17 when he, Rosenstein issued the scope memo on the special prosecutor, on Mueller and his team. Uh, and uh, Rosenstein's basic defense is I was kept in the dark, hmm. perhaps willfully blind, perhaps grossly negligent. I don't know which, but either way, it's bad news, isn't it? And this is why you remember our conversation. I don't know if you caught the show in the interview with Angelo Cotavia, a uh, academic emeritus from Boston University, who was one of the co-authors of the uh, FISA Act that gave rise to the FISA courts, arguing that FISA needs to be repealed. The courts need to be abolished. Because it's become a rubber stamp. It was, always, frankly, become, it was always intended to be a rubber stamp. It's one thing for the court to be a rubber stamp, and it has been. Between 1979 and 2019, the court granted almost 34,000 warrants while denying 12 requests, 0.03%. But it's also a rubber stamped by, depending on the attorney general or acting attorney general, the attorney general. Well, you don't even need the court. Or I guess this is, the, you know, gives everybody the opportunity to CYA. Well, the attorney general signed the application while the court approved the application. And uh, Cotavia, which you can check out uh, my interview of him, I, I reposted on Twitter, at Dan Prop Show. It's worth uh, listening to what he has to say. The whole point was judicial warrants of pre-authorization. That's what uh, intelligence wanted. They didn't worry that the judge would hamstring them. What would judges know about national security? FISA would be pro forma, and that's what it's become. And when Rod Rosenstein there, so was Department of Justice, and that's the problem. This is Dan Proff. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, turning to the uh, fallout from the lockdown as uh, still, still taking stock to varying degrees, state by state, country by country. This from uh, my hometown of Chicago, the owner of a uh, popular north side Lakeview neighborhood, if you know Chicago, you know, urban professional area, popular restaurant, Falstrom's Fresh Fish Market closing for good. The owner writing online, it's with eternal gratitude I want to thank every customer that has walked through my doors in the last six years. Sadly, the music has stopped and is being replaced with fear and confusion. The new restaurant model is asking owners to put employees in harm's way so that their business can possibly survive. That is an acceptable risk I cannot take. Yeah, I don't actually think that's accurate, but okay. The restaurant business, as I know, is, as I know it, is gone and will not return for years. 
It was hard enough when the playing field was supposedly level. Now it is tilted beyond recognition. So I'm closing Falstrom's Fresh Fish Market. I'm afraid I will not be the only one. At 50% capacity, it will be impossible to generate enough revenue to meet the old expenses model. And with the new owner's restrictions put in place for servicing customers, it looks like nothing like a restaurant should and more like someone at a freeway ramp asking for help. So I'm closing the market. And he makes recommendations for other restaurants to patronize. But it's uh, an interesting commentary. By the way, this is just the, the same day as outdoor seating was made available for restaurateurs in Chicago, outdoor seating alone. So, you know, 50 percent capacity inside. That's still a pipe dream in Chicago, which is still 99 percent closed for the hospitality industry. Devastating. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Miller. He's an associate professor of hospitality management at Colorado State University, the Rams. Jeffrey Miller, Professor Miller, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, so this is really, um, there's some real variance uh, state by state and and even city by city in terms of uh, the reopening. But, uh, you know, you talk to uh, the Restaurant Association people in Chicago and they're talking about 25 to 50 percent of the restaurants not returning post-COVID-19, you know, for a city that considers itself the restaurant capital of North America. That is just a massive hammering, both of entrepreneurs as well as employment opportunities. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we're seeing the same thing in Colorado. I'd be very surprised if we didn't lose at least a third of our restaurants. You know, it's a month to month kind of business. And Without cash flow, you just can't operate a restaurant. And so, you know, as the maybe some of the bigger players who can weather the storm and some of the bigger thinkers in this sector, uh, what does the future look like? You know, I mean, you're you're here, this uh, owner of this fish market I mentioned, talk about this isn't like the restaurant business and it's not going to be like the restaurant business was before the pandemic for years to come. What is it going to be like? It's definitely going to be different. The short run is going to be a lot of carry out, a lot of delivery, not much in person. You know, if you have to have six feet between parties and servers and masks and all that kind of stuff, it's going to be very hard on the hospitality experience. So in the short run, I think it's going to be a lot of carry out, a lot of delivery. I think the smaller players will get out. The restaurant business used to be a business with very low threshold for entry in the sense that you know you could get ten or $20,000 saved up or borrow from your relatives and open a restaurant. You just can't do that anymore. And the only people who can really afford to outfit a restaurant or build a building and outfit a restaurant are the big major players, the chains, the franchises who can get that. And they're also the only ones with deep enough pockets to ride it out. So I think in the long term, what we're going to see is much more national organizations, big chains, big franchises, and much less of the smaller independent entrepreneur. Well, that's a real problem for the uh, the landscapes in big cities where we like uh, neighborhoods and we like originality and we like diversity. And so it's the, that means it's going to change the landscape of cities and may, maybe perhaps make it a lot less attractive, the trade-offs of the expense of living in big cities and uh, the other negatives that come with uh, er- concentrated urban areas for positives that uh, are no longer going to be as prevalent. Yeah, you know, I think that's what is one of the joys of, you know, going to a big city. I, you know, I go to Denver, you know, I come to Chicago to visit, and I like the, the quirky, the independent, you know, the people who are trying new things, and it's where I get a chance to try new flavors and new cuisines and new concepts, and we're going to see less of that, because if you 
you know, the big players, they're not willing to take as, as many chances on unknown things as, as some of the lively, smaller entrepreneurs. So you're right. It's going to change the face of places like Chicago. And then it uh, becomes perhaps a bit of a a bit of a spiral because then commercial real estate suffers as well. And then you start to have these ripple effects of uh, empty storefronts and uh, businesses that just want, don't want to locate or take a chance in Chicago. I, I assume that's the case with uh, you know, other iterations of enterprise in the hospitality sector too, even including some of the bigger hoteliers. Uh, yeah, you know, the hotels have deep enough pockets, the chains. You know, there's almost no independent ownership in hotels anymore. Right. So that's pretty much a chain business, and I think some of them you know, will have big enough lines of credit to see themselves through. It won't be pretty for the stockholders, and it won't be pretty for management, and, and it definitely won't be pretty for employees. But in the end, I think they'll pull through. It'll be hard on, it'll be hard on commercial real estate. In in big cities, you you know you go down the street in Chicago, and how many how many restaurants are there in in every block? You know, so we're already seeing that in Colorado as well, where landlords are having trouble, you know, because nobody can pay the rent. Well, and and though even though even some of the bigger players look, if if you're going to be, I mean, you know, right now capacity is at like five percent in the hotels in Chicago, but if you're going to be at twenty or twenty five percent for the foreseeable future because people aren't going to be traveling for work and people are going more and more people are going to be able to work digitally and 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 from a distance and so forth. I mean that changes the economics of that industry too. Oh absolutely and, and it'll be very ugly for hotels for a while. Like you're saying if 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 there's only twenty five percent occupancy, thirty percent occupancy in places, which I'm seeing a lot when I talk to hotel operators. Yeah. Then the, you know, the lodging companies will use it as a chance to close down the underperforming properties, and you definitely won't see anything new built for a while until this, until we work our way through the end of that. Uh, there'll be some pent-up demand, and, and you know, leisure travel will come back eventually, but, you know, we just don't have any kind of crystal ball about when that's going to be. And uh, before I let you go, I, I have to... Uh take note of your ode to mac and cheese um, ah. going from uh, one end of the spectrum to the other talking about farm to table restaurants and all the uh, novelties there of the restaurant scene uh, all the way back to our childhood uh, mom making us mac and cheese for lunch before we go out and play in the dirt um, what was the inspiration for mac and cheese the uh, the tribute to it the tribute came from the fact that that and it's interesting aside to what we we're just talking about you know, in, in 2015, we finally tipped the balance between more food being prepared food being bought out than being bought in the grocery store to prepare. Then we thought, oh, that's the inevitable trend that, you know, forever after people are going to buy more prepared food out than they're going to buy to make it home. Well, boy, this just totally, with restaurant sales cratering, that totally turned this around. And as people went back to the grocery stores to buy things to cook, the things they, a lot of the things they went for were comfort foods, and what's a bigger comfort food than macaroni and cheese from a box? There you go. Maybe SpaghettiOs. Uh, that's uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. a close, a close second. Jeffrey Miller, Associate Professor, of Hospitality Management, Colorado State University. Professor Miller, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take Stay care. safe and well. You too. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It seems to me there are uh, two philosophies afoot here in these uh, times of civil unrest as it pertains to race. One is expressed by Darlene Glanton, Chicago Tribune columnist. White America, if you want to know who's responsible for racism, look in the mirror. White people, you are the problem. Regardless of how much you say you detest racism, you are the sole reason it has flourished for centuries and you're the only ones who can stop it. Black people, for the most part, are powerless to stop racism. If we could, we would have done it long ago. America cannot rid itself of this curse unless white people accept responsibility for it. And frankly, most of you aren't willing to take that leap. There's the problem. What responsibility for the racist past, what uh, eliminating racism the present entails, she's not too specific about. But that's one foundation of one philosophy. Here's another. Shelby Steele, author of White Guilt, among uh, and most recently Shame, uh, who dates back to the civil rights area. Uh, Darlene Glanton, black woman. Shelby Steele, black man. In America, you were brutalized. From birth on, you were whipped, lashed. Your children was, was taken from you and sold away. Your wives were, were used at the will of the, of, of the uh, overseer, whatever. I mean, it just was dehumanizing in every conceivable way and for centuries. So you got a beef. How long are you going to ride that beef? Uh, how long do you think it's going to take? Because the only person who can break that bond is you inside yourself. Say, well, just because white people were once racist does not mean I'm going to sell out my life. I'm going to ask less of myself uh, and claim that I'm being held back by victimization. Uh, and that's what is... Uh, that what is so startling to me, the, the way that is you see now of inventing, reinventing, as I say, the, the oppression uh, in your mind, the same oppression that is fading out of the world. As it fades, you cling and reinvent it, rebuild it. And so you now become the racist overseer of yourself. For more on this, pleased to be joined by His Eminence, VDH, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, by the way, a Shelby Steele colleague of his, author most recently of The Case for Trump. He is Victor Davis Hanson. VDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I think I know where you come down in terms of these two competing philosophies I presented, but what would your, so what would your response to Darlene Glanton be about white people being the problem and they're the only ones who can solve the racism that uh, she suggests exists. Well, whenever these statements arrive, my first reaction is I, I like to, to look at the context of that immediate evocation and then the larger parameter. So she's angry and she everybody is angry that an African-American in custody died. And probably you could even use the word may have been murdered by a policeman, a rogue policeman, whatever we want to call him. And therefore, she extrapolates that that's indicative of all police, the way they treat black people and America, white people in general. So I say to myself, let's go to the data. And I look at the data of police killings of people who are unarmed. And there's about double the number of white cops, uh, white victims by cops than there is blacks. I know the blacks only commit are only 12 percent of the population, but they commit about 49 percent of violent crimes. So I don't see a disparity there. And then I say to myself, interracial crime is rare in America, but when it does exist, is it symptomatic of white people, as she says, killing or 
brutalizing blacks, and, and it's about five times disproportionately black on white and white on black. So then I say, well, are white people, do, what are they doing? Are they committing crimes or black people? Well, black people, as I said, are about five times more likely to commit crimes. Okay. And is that because of a, then we get into the next level. Is that because of a warped justice system? But she didn't make that argument. So they don't, at least she didn't. She didn't say that America is so racist and hasn't improved that it, it, it results in a, a black crime wave. And that's that's what we're talking about. So I don't see any data that white people in general are killing blacks. I don't see any gen- that the police are killing anybody that's on, unarmed. It's about this year, I think last year it was 100 people. And so it's not an epidemic. So then what is the point of all this? Is it that black people are suffering because of Donald Trump? Well, I mean, he had 5.4 unemployment before COVID-19. That was a record low unemployment record for black America. Their household income went up the highest it's ever been to 42,000. Well, okay, if I, if 15% let, is let's, Barack Obama's. Let, let's just, let's leave it there. I want to come back there. What is the point of all this? Because it seems to me the response, uh, what is the point of all of it? Yeah. Yeah. Let, when it's we come back, it's political, isn't it? Yeah. When we come back, I want to explore that too. And I'll even compare from five years ago when you had, uh, rioting after Ferguson and Baltimore when President Trump wasn't in the picture. More with Victor Davis Hanson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of The Case for Trump, right after this. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and author, most recently, of The Case for Trump, as well as recognized historian. And we were just talking before the break, you know, the point of all this. What happens when the data doesn't matter? Because it seems to be that we're in that environment. The statistics you recited before the break just don't matter in terms of the conversation, at least among a wide swath of those participating in the protests, much less the rioters as well as the media covering it all. Well, they don't matter because, I mean, we had a killing by a rogue cop who was African-American and blew the head off an Australian-American white woman in Minneapolis. There was no protest. He was charged with third-degree murder. He serving 12 years, Officer Norris. So this happens, but why doesn't it matter? Why aren't these facts relevant? Because there's a political agenda. Again, a particular one that the left sees this rioting and protesting and looting and arson is the magic bullet that will serve the same purpose that the 25th Amendment effort, the impeachment effort, the Robert Mueller effort, the COVID lockdown, the COVID virus itself did not quite achieve. And that is the discrediting of Donald Trump to the point where he won't be reelected. And then more generally, every time this happens, then people are leveraged for outreach, more programs, more money, more social radical changes in social policy. We've been hearing, you know, the abolishment or radical curtailment of the police. So the entire progressive agenda then becomes renegotiable. And then people are supposed to show penance and guilt and say, okay, just stop it, please, and I'll give you all this. It's all predicated on the idea of intimidation. I hate to say that, but it is. You start looting and protesting. I mean, when once some protests that are legitimate go into arson and destruction and they're contextualized, then the person is saying, we, we'll stop all that violence if 
you do this that will prevent us from doing it. And it lasts about four or five years, and then it starts up again. Dan Henninger, writing in uh, the Wall Street Journal, I want to get your perspective on this as a historian, argues that what you see on the streets of America over the last several days is actually worse than 1968 because the political system is now engaged in a systemic act of forgetting. Let's forget that this policy failure has happened or why. Let's forget, for instance, that the people living in New York's public housing are overrun with rats, unlit hallways and no heat in the winter. Point he's making is let's forget everything that's happened in urban centers over the last 50 years where little, if any, progress has been made on quality of life for the denizens of particular neighborhoods after $30 trillion worth of great society spending uh, in areas dominated by Democrats for the last half century to century. I think he's pretty right on. What I think is really disturbing is this use that comes back into currency and all these white privileges and then very elite white people who probably do have privilege then make these public confessionals as we saw the other day with this mass oath. And the problem in America is really class. I might suspect that 30 miles away when I see impoverished white people from the Oklahoma diaspora living in Tulare, California or Appalachia or Southern Ohio who were just absolutely wiped out by globalization. They're not eligible for affirmative action. Their per capita income and their dependency on welfare is higher per capita than some minority communities. Am I really supposed to believe that they exercise a privilege that Eric Holder doesn't have or Oprah doesn't have? I don't believe that's true. So what we're seeing is a very wealthy white class sort of virtue signaling to minority communities that they're ashamed of their white privilege, not their own, other white privilege. And they sort of castigate the so-called deplorable, the clinger and the Anderthal racist. But they're not really talking about people who don't have any privilege that they use as a surrogate for their own guilt or their desire to find redemption by public confessions of crimes that they attribute to somebody else. And then there's the class thing. I mean, does anybody really believe when this is all over? These people who are making these public pronunciations that they're going to work for a less divisive society are going to say, I'm not going to put my kid anymore into St. Paul's Academy. I'm going to put my kids with the other. Mm -hmm. I'm going to live near the other. I don't want to live in the Upper West Side. I don't want to live in Woodside. I don't want to live in Presidio Heights anymore. I want to be with other people. I don't want to be verbal about it. I I don't believe that's going to happen. And I know it's not going to happen because Antifa is primarily an upper middle class white group who plans a lot of these demonstrations in the shadows. And then as foot soldiers, inner city youth are televised looting. And even among the left's mode of protest, there's a racial disparity by the very people who are complaining about it. The other thing, too, I just if this is just one expression of a larger cultural phenomenon. It's um, really something to watch and listen to professional athletes, for example, speak in the same cant of politicians. You know, Drew Brees has to apologize for saying uh, it's, uh, you know, it's disrespectful to I won't tolerate people being disrespectful to the flag because I have family members who serve this country in the military. And then the firestorm comes and he is forced to bend the knee. But just the, the tedium of the contributions of those with platforms in this country speaking exactly as you would expect Maxine Waters or some hack politician to speak. 
Well, absolutely. And it's often from the most affluent and privileged of our society. I don't know why that is other than they have the luxury to it because they feel they're never subject to the consequences of their own ideology. And so they can make those statements. And what happens now, though, it's very dangerous because when you get in these mass hysterias and what we're seeing with Hollywood, foundations, academia, K-12 through teachers, the media, the progressive bureaucracy, it's almost as if it's a stamp of membership. So each person tries to outdo the other person in condemning blanket white racism and pointing their fingers at all of these supposed culpable people who caused this problem that didn't. And then that sort of reinforces or reifies their credibility. And that's what we're seeing right now. And we see it at universities. I, I don't know how many memos at Stanford University I've received from deans and provosts, all rebuking white privilege and white people for this crime. And then I turn on the television and I see rampant looting, arson, destruction, some killing, violence. And I read that General James S. Mattis is saying that there were only a few protesters. And right. he is now invoking Donald Trump in terms of Nazi Germany in the way that General Hayden did it with Auschwitz, in the way that General McCaffrey did it with Mussolini. And so whatever their views are about the president, a retired flag officer does not should not compare a sitting commander-in-chief to Nazis or Mussolini when invoking federal troops in the case of Mattis has happened at least 12 occasions, whether it's Eisenhower or Hoover or Cleveland or George Bush or, uh, or you know, Richard Nick, they all do it at some time. And yet we're in, I'm getting back to the article that you referenced because we are in crazy times. When we come back with Victor Davis Hanson, I want to pick up on the uh, danger you see looming ahead. More with VDH when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Victor Davis Hanson, and I want to pick up on what you were saying before the break, what you described and the institutions you ticked off. Uh, it seems to me, if I understand uh, history, that uh, the only way you have uh, totalitarian governments come to power is b- by folding in all of the civic institutions within the government. And so I look around and I listen to what you just said, and I say, well, who has the raw materials? Which ideology has the raw materials to actually impose some sort of authoritarian or totalitarian state? Who is trying to enforce unanimity of opinion? Is it conservatives? Is it uh, the president of the United States? President Trump couldn't even if he wanted to because he doesn't have fellow travelers in charge of all of those cultural institutions you just mentioned. But the left does. All they're missing is the federal government. Well, you and I are discussing this this problem at a time when before the Senate Intelligence Committee and formerly of the House, we're getting, and the Director of National Intelligence, we are now getting authoritative documents that show that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Central Intelligence Agency, and high members of the Department of Justice were engaged in what could only be called a coup, called a coup over a sitting uh, 
a elected president during his transition and as a candidate during the uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. And no one's talking about it. I mean, this is just absolutely outrageous that a acting DOJ would testify under oath to a Senate that he is responsible, that he had uh, accountability. He's, he had accountability, but he wasn't responsible basically for forging documents to full FISA court and diluting them. And so what I'm getting at is there's a lot of things to be outraged, but we're not hearing any of that outrage. And that's what we are now. Every single crisis is used to leverage Donald Trump out of office because of some deep visceral existential hatred of him. And I don't know where it comes from. I understand he's an outlier. I understand he's rough around the edges. I understand he's controversial. But if I was going to be a reductionist, I would say the hatred of the president creates a sort of mass hysteria and insanity and retired officers and college provost and CNN commentators. When you have a CNN commentator saying everything is peaceful in a manner of Baghdad Bob and you see flames billowing up from an arsonist, what, what can you do? Right. It, it, you're, you're in lunatic land. He is VDH, Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, author most recently of The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com website you also find podcasts there as you do on spotify and itunes twitter at dan Proft and at dan Proft show susan rice says it's the russians i mean this was a national security advisor the uh rioters are right out of the old russian playbook uh-huh uh others are uh suggesting yeah um Sure, Antifa, uh, maybe. Go ahead, go after Antifa, but also it's uh, you know, white supremacists, the real, they're the ones agitating. It's nice when white supremacists and uh, Black Lives Matter can come together to uh, destroy cities. Is that what's really happening? James Casey, who is a, um, law, was a law enforcement officer for 32 years, 25 years with the FBI, uh, and uh, supervised a squad in the Midwest that investigated militia, neo-Nazi, anarchist groups. He writes at TheHill.com about who he thinks it is. It's not Black Lives Matter for the most part, he believes. Two other groups, neo-Nazis and Antifa. He characterizes them incorrectly, one on the extreme right, one on the extreme left. Reminder, Nazis, National Socialists, that's the derivation, they're the left. Any person or group that espouses an ideology of authoritarianism or totalitarianism is a entity of the left. Conservatives, free minds, and free markets. 
So stop pretending. Uh, some on the left, some on the right. No, no. Authoritarians and totalitarians are the byproduct of radical leftism. Okay. Now that we have that established, uh, he uh, suggests, based on his expertise in law enforcement, not in philosophy, that um, there are three agendas in play. The protesters are organized marches to voice their outrage, the looters and opportunists, and the anarchists who are rioting and causing most of the damage. These anarchists are highly indicative of groups that have engaged in similar tactics going back decades, for the most part separate and distinct from neo-Nazi white nationalist groups. Antifa would, I think, be the progeny of those anarchists from your uh, that uh, James Casey is describing. Uh, for more on this, uh, I think it uh, dovetails nicely into his new offering. Pleased to be joined by Dinesh D'Souza, of course, critically acclaimed filmmaker, New York Times bestselling author of the just-released United States of Socialism, who's behind it, why it's evil, how to stop it. Dinesh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be on the show. Uh, it's great to have you back. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, apply the uh, thesis of uh, your new book with uh, what you're seeing on the streets of America. Well, what we're seeing on the streets of America is, I think, uh, nothing less than a paramilitary force that I don't think has existed in the United States quite in this way. Uh, you found it in Europe in the 20s and 30s, the Mussolini black shirts, for example, or Hitler's brown shirts. These are socialist parties that felt that they needed some street gangs to beat up dissenters, beat up their political opponents, and also beat up small businessmen. My wife is from Venezuela, and currently in Venezuela, you've got the same thing, a paramilitary force They're called the colectivos. A lot of them are criminals, but they're armed by the regime. They're given cement blocks, sticks, bats, and they beat up shopkeepers, and they beat up members of the political opposition. So what I find really alarming is that apparently there are people in powerful positions in the media, in Hollywood, and in the Democratic Party, including in the mayor's office in New York, who are okay with all this and actually tacitly encouraging it, which means that Antifa has friends in high places. There's something else pernicious I wanted to get your comment on, or at least I think it is. I made the point earlier in the week, former Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, who presided over the rioting in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray killing in police custody, and made the, the, the infamous statement about creating a, a safe space for rioters. And she was ridiculed at the time. Five years later, it's actually the policy of all of these big city mayors. They just use different language to couch it. They say the police exercise great restraint as a cover for their rules of engagement, which is to create a safe space for the rioters. Yes, and I don't know if you've seen on social media these really embarrassing pictures of policemen taking a knee, even even National Guardsmen doing it, and then these rituals of self-abasement. In one of them, a young white couple is asked by these Black Lives Matter guys to kiss their feet, and so they keep kissing their feet. And, you know, this is in America. I find all of this really to be, it's almost a certain kind of malaise of the American soul here. And it also shows, by the way, a new direction of socialism. Traditionally, socialism was all about class. Uh, when Marx thought about a socialist, he thought about a union guy who was not getting proper wages. Now it's all about race and gender and identity politics. And so in the book, I call it identity socialism because it's a weird marriage of classic socialism and identity politics. That's the shape of socialism today. Uh, Dan Henninger writing the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning uh, 
says uh, what we have on the streets of America right now is worse than 1968 because the political system is now engaged in a systemic act of forgetting. Forget that uh, the policy failures that have happened or why they happened. For, forget, uh, for instance, people living in New York's public housing uh, that are overrun with rats and unlit hallways and no heat in the winter. And the other thing that makes it worse than 68, in my estimation, is where the culture has gone over the last 50 years and the infrastructure, the left and the identitarians of which you speak, have been able to build over that time, even just in the last decade. That makes it qualitatively different and more dangerous than 68. Also, I think that conservatives are often pointing out to the bias in the media. Look at the way you covered Trump versus the way you covered Obama. And the problem with all this is that it is a tacit appeal to some higher sense of impartiality or objectivity. And the double standard is intended to draw attention to that. But I think we have a media now that actually doesn't even care. Even the old sort of CNN model where you have crossfire and you at least give the impression that you've got two sides and you're trying to represent both and hear them out and have a debate, that's kind of gone from American politics. And so I think in a sense this is maybe even be our biggest problem even more than Trump's re-election because it affects every election. Well, clearly, I mean, the example, prime example right now, what you're talking about is the hysteria over at the New York Times because they published a op-ed by a sitting United States senator with respect to a policy that you can agree or disagree with, but it's a lawful policy. This would be sending in military into these cities that are war-torn, Tom Cotton being the senator. You can say, as Mark Esper said, I don't think the Insurrection Act of 1807 should be invoked. I don't think we need to do it at this point, so on and so forth. But the idea that that op-ed should have not even been published is what's remarkable. Yeah, I think we're going to have to move toward a position in which we just see these media outlets for what they are. I mean, the New York Times represents a kind of upper Manhattan left-wing perspective, um, and that's what it is. It's not the newspaper of record. It's not publishing all the news that's fit to print. So I think we are seeing, though, on our side, not only an ability now to see through things that wasn't there before. Think of the, how the traditional Republican would either go into the fetal position or just run for cover every time there was a media expose. I think part of what Trump has shown us is you don't have to do that. You don't have to run from the fray. You can be in the fray and you can even come out unscathed. Is it uh, too cynical, too conspiratorial to suggest uh, with the recent data, you know, and the lockdown policies predating the burn down approach that half of black Americans, more than half now, are unemployed after uh, historically low unemployment pre-pandemic? So you have mostly lower income, lower to middle income, disproportionately minorities in the service sector that comprise the 20 percent unemployed in this country concentrated in big cities. So you have big city mayors and blue state governors of big states that have, through lockdown policies, allowed uh, their champagne socialist friends to be protected, while constituencies that they need are in a position where they may have to become even more dependent, generally speaking, on government than they were pre-pandemic. Is it too cynical to suggest um, perhaps design there? Well, I don't think design in the sense of something that was orchestrated from the outset, but I do think that the left has recognized that the only way to move in the socialist direction is to deploy at full force the politics of fear. 
Uh, Marx had predicted that the revolution would come automatically through the discontent of the working class, but that's never happened anywhere in the world. And so since then, the left is using, I would call it the FDR model. FDR was able to push things through because of the atmosphere of fear surrounding the depression. He did things that he could never have done otherwise. And since then, the left has been always trying to whip us up into a frenzy. In the 70s, the earth was running out of food. In the 80s, nuclear winter. For the last 20 years, the oceans have been rising and the glaciers have been disappearing and the penguins have been coughing. But it's all the same thing. It's all basically go nuts, adopt a crowd psychology, stampede, and do things that in calm, rational moments you would never do. Maybe it's the penguins that are the source of the COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, a critically acclaimed filmmaker, New York Times bestselling author, his uh, new offering, United States of Socialism, who's behind it, why it's evil, how to stop it. Dinesh, thanks as always for joining us. Good luck with the book. My pleasure. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Have you started watching the uh, Netflix series on Jeffrey Epstein? Hashtag Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. I have uh, watched the first two episodes. It's really interesting. Um, the first uh, the first episode um, gives you a new appreciation for how long he was on law enforcement's radar locally and um, how involved was the investigation into Jeffrey Epstein locally by Palm Beach Police, then how that investigation got derailed by his powerful friends. It's, that's one fascinating part of the story, but uh, there's certainly more. And uh, somebody who's looked at it in much more detail than I have is Alana Goodman, who's a senior investigative reporter at the Washington Free Beacon and author of the just released A Convenient Death, The Mysterious Demise of Jeffrey Epstein. Alana, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, why don't we just start with the uh, question that uh, always comes with sort of these serial predators that get away with their predation for Years and years and years. We talk about it with R. Kelly and, of course, uh, here in Chicago, their series on him, too, Surviving R. Kelly. And it's the same with Epstein is how could he get away with what he was doing for so long with so many people having a good indication of what he was doing? Yeah, it's shocking. And I think that a lot of that involves his very elite network of friends. So our book looks at two main issues. First, we investigate the very bizarre circumstances leading up to his death in prison and the questions about whether foul play could have been involved. Uh, And then second, we look at his very powerful political connections and connections in the finance and business worlds, including Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and he was very close to Victoria's Secret billionaire Leslie Wexner. And in Clinton's case, for example, we found that Epstein had a direct line to the president going back to when Clinton was in the White House in the 1990s. And one instance that we reported on, Clinton was at a party at Carolyn Kennedy's house on Martha's Vineyard, and the Secret Service came and told him, you know, you got an important phone call, stepped out, and it was uh, Jeffrey Epstein on the phone, and he took the call for 10 minutes and went back into the party. So Epstein had, you know, they they were close, and he had this direct line to him, even when he was in the White House, although Clinton has 
downplayed his relationship with Epstein, obviously. Though the way he's presented in the Netflix series is almost like he had like Jim Jones quality Svengali character. He was able to defraud Bear Stearns, uh, essentially. But, and by that, I don't mean financially. I mean, he lied about his resume. He lied about his education. It was discovered. There was a, obviously the move to immediately terminate him, but he was able to talk his way out of that, continue at Bear Stearns and work his way up to making these relationships that allowed him to amass a massive fortune. And there was also even an indication that maybe he and that billionaire Wexner had a relationship. I, I don't know yeah. if, if you picked up on that, but I mean, that. And, and so, again, just in terms of like the Jim Jones parallel that I'm trying to draw, that that's how maybe that helps to explain how he was able to get away with it for so long, this hold he was able to develop over people? Yeah, well, definitely his really, we had heard that while we were reporting this book out, and, and, and we do touch on that issue in the book. I, I know that early on, after he met Wexner, you know, the local authorities um, were very interested in this in, in Ohio, and they actually called Epstein, they would call Epstein Wexner's boyfriend or his gal Friday. Um, but yeah, this was what Epstein did. I mean, he he, all, he wanted to give people this impression that uh, he was very mysterious and even at some point that he might have been tied to foreign intelligence or domestic intelligence. intelligence. Um, he would make statements to friends like um, back at Langley, they would say such and such to us, uh, you know, implying that he was involved with U.S. intelligence in some capacity, uh, and he, he also had connections with foreign officials, in, including in the U.K., Israel, and Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, one of his, you know, his, his friends also said that his house in Palm Beach was wired up with security cameras, um, or sorry, his house in New York was wired up with security cameras, including in the bathroom of the house. Well, so this, um, so this is what I'm getting so, at. It was part of his M.O., to gain information or do things to leverage people, maintain leverage over people. Yeah, well, well, and, and intelligence sources I spoke to said that if he was providing information to governments, it was likely a one-way street, um, and they, they really doubted he would have been privy to any sort of important national security information, just given his background and lifestyle. Um, but yeah, I think he there, there was an element of he was connecting or he was he was trying to he would try to get information out of people that he might later use as leverage against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in terms of uh, stopping him earlier in his uh, long running uh, predation of young women. Uh, two questions. One is why has uh, his girl Friday, Ghislaine Maxwell, not been brought into custody? With everything they know, uh, certainly as presented in the Netflix documentary, I assume authorities have that same information, if not more. And secondly, mm-hmm. uh, what, what is your assessment of the job local police did trying to investigate and uh, and and bring him to justice? Because uh, they're presented in a fairly positive light in that Netflix series. And I just want to get your sense of whether that's accurate or not, that they did their job at that level and they were... Um, you know, derailed by uh, Jeffrey Epstein's powerful friends. Yeah, I think that 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 is my impression as well. I think that the local police were very intent on investigating this thoroughly, and and they were they were very disappointed in what ultimately happened, where he was able to get this very cushy, you know, not even really 
jail. It was, uh, you know, sources told me it was more of like this private area of prison that he was in and he was able to get work release and it was just a, a very light sentence. Um, you know, on, on Glenn Maxwell, it's very interesting because we were told that uh, Clinton's primary motive for hanging around Epstein was that he was having an affair with Glenn Maxwell. Um, and she was, of course, Epstein's on and off girlfriend who was a, has been accused of helping him procure underage girls. So that, um, you know, that's something that definitely could have been used and, by well, Epstein well, as leverage. And, and so why isn't she in custody? It's it's a good question, and I mean the what my my impression on this is they would be it was a very sensitive thing to have to if she's in a in another country to have to expedite her to the United States if they don't think that they can win a prevail in a case against her. And I will mention, I mean Jeffrey Epstein's legal team they thought they they had a very a solid case. They thought that they had a very good chance of being victorious in this. And um, so this wasn't, I mean, I mean, you look at the evidence against him um, and it's just so enormous, but he did sign this, he did go and enter this agreement with the uh, state attorney in Florida, a non-prosecution agreement for future things. They thought that they might, his lawyers thought he might be able to get out of it on that. Um, and, and they had various other legal strategies as well so they were very confident and uh, you know that could be the same situation for Glenn Maxwell as well she is Alana Goodman senior investigative reporter at the Washington Free Beacon and author of A Convenient Death The Mysterious Demise of Jeffrey Epstein Alana thanks for joining us good luck with the book thanks The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, yesterday on with Maria Bartiroma, White House uh, Economic Advisor Kevin Hassett was talking about uh, the uh, jobs numbers and whether or not we've reached the nadir of unemployment uh, in this uh, era of pandemic and now civil unrest. Uh, this is what he had to say, basically, is we won't know till June. By June, we'll have seen the worst. Uh, but right now, the claims are heading down. The real-time activity data that I know you talk about on the show has started to head up. Uh, the percentage of businesses open is closing in on going above 90 percent in some states. And so there are definitely a lot of positive signs, but I don't think we're there yet. We're still getting initial claims that uh, or, you know, show that there are a lot of job losses out there. That's very disappointing. And uh, he was uh, stunned when the ADP number came over the transom, showing only 2.7 million jobs lost in May as compared to uh, projected 9 million. And uh, we also find today, in terms of weekly unemployment claims, another 2 million, but it's holding steady because people are coming off of unemployment as well at around 21.5 million Americans on unemployment. But still, I mean, just numbers unfathomable just a few months ago. So I don't want to discount them, but everything is in the context of expectations. For more on this and how that, along with 
our response to COVID-19, as well as the response to the civil unrest, particularly in big urban centers, will uh, change the topography of America when uh, peace and openness resumes. We're pleased to be joined again by Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute. Uh, His new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, is now out from Encounter. Joel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. We've talked about this before, per your book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. You see the middle-income family sort of in two camps, and you put it in medieval terms, the yeomanry and the clerisy, the yeomanry, the blue-collar workers, the, the those who don't have uh, you know, political clout, uh, social status, as it were, and uh, the professional managerial class, as is my handle on it, that would be the clerisy. Uh, with what's happened in the cities now in the last 90 days and just in the last seven days in the combination of the two, does that uh, change your outlook for neo-feudalism in this country at all? No, oh, I've actually, I think it's what we've been seeing is neo-feudalism, if anything, has gotten stronger. In neo-feudalism, the two ascendant classes are the tech oligarchs who have, by the way, done very well yeah. and are going to do even better in given the greater reliance on technology and remote work, this is an enormous win for these companies. Um, so this group, the oligarchs who are aristocracy, have gotten stronger. So too has the clerisy. So too have been epidemiologists you know, who are now celebrities. You have expertise, you know, the idea that science is something like revealed religion always amazes me, you know, given that my father was a scientist, and I, you know, he always used to say to me, well, you know who killed the most people in the world? It was doctors, Um, you know, because he said what he learned as a doctor training in Boston in the late 1930s turned out to be a lot of it, he said, was was actually quite bad. Um, The the practice, the practice of medicine, right? Right. And he always said that there was a certain degree of an art in it, Mm -hmm. and you couldn't quantify everything. I think this idea that we can quantify anything like, let's say, climate change or now the pandemic, and if we do this, this will happen. And I mean, these projections were so wrong. I mean, they were wrong on every side. They were wrong initially in not seeing the threat. They were wrong in then exaggerating the threat. So the clerisy, though, has become very, very powerful. And of course, the media has become very, very powerful. And it's also rather interesting to me how much the media seems to more or less embrace the even the looting and the violence. They don't certainly see mm-hmm. they see it as legitimate. Who's been hurt? The yeoman, the small business owner, many times uh, a minority in California, 60 percent of all the restaurant owners are minorities. They've been decimated. Small property owners. I was uh, interviewing um, an attorney in Lemert Park, which is a middle-class enclave uh, in in South Los Angeles, and about how all these people she knows who are, you know, they own a couple of buildings. This was going to be their retirement, and now they can't get rents. You know, you even now have, you know, in some municipalities talking about, you know, having having, uh, the right of squatters. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to get anyone out of an apartment, that's for sure. Let, let's uh, let's hold it right there. Let, let me hold it right there. When we come back, I want to pick up on that point uh, about the experts, including the celebrity epidemiologists, as well as the serfs that you see on the streets in part. More with Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, right after this. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking to Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, now out from Encounter Books. And we were talking about uh, some people who have been hurt, who don't have the political clout, who are caught in the crossfire, and uh, what that will mean for the landscape looking ahead. Here's another example of what Joel Kotkin was talking about before the break. This African-American lady who is a co-owner of a grocery store in the Bronx, and listen to what she had to say to those who were destroying her neighborhood. You said black lives matter. I've worked here part-time. Plus, I'm a part owner of this store. You said black lives matter. Look what you did to my store. Joel, it doesn't seem like uh, there are too many members of the clerisy that want to speak for that shop owner. Yeah, well, because fundamentally, there's a large amount of disdain for people like that woman. Maybe she doesn't have a Ph.D. in grievance studies, but <laughs> she worked really hard. I mean, I was interviewed a, a woman who runs a dry cleaning store that's been there for 60 years in South Los Angeles the other day. And, you know, she says, well, you know, how long can we keep this up? We've been through, you know, now this is the third major riot in the last 55 years, 60 years the pandemic. I mean, these people are struggling to survive. And I don't think academics and the media have a great deal of sympathy for these people. And of course, one of the problems with the yeomanry and, you know, the same thing could be said about people live in suburbs and the same thing could be said of middle class families. They don't have time to work the streets. They don't have time to go and cultivate reporters. You know, if you're raising a family and you have a house and you're trying to keep things going, you're too busy with other things to worry about sort of ideological issues or sort of abstractions. And so I think what's happening is we're just seeing this separation between the sort of clerical class and the oligarchs above them, who also in many cases fund what they're doing. And there seems to be, you know, sort of two systems in operation, right? both in terms of uh, what you can do or not do, as well as the consequences attendant to what you do or don't do. For example, you can steal and uh, there are no consequences. Steal from a business. You can burn down a business, no consequences. You open your business, consequences. You get a ticket from the city or worse. In addition to that, the consequences of bad actions or being wrong. I mean, before the House, uh, a committee of the House of Lords, Neil Ferguson the Imperial College London modeler who came up with these worst-case scenario predictions that were wildly off about the death totals that COVID-19 would impose. And now he's saying, um, you know, lockdown is a very crude policy. And what we'd like to do is have a much more targeted approach that does not have the same economic impacts. I mean, his model was what the West adopted for these draconian lockdowns. People like me and others, including medical professionals, suggesting maybe we need to learn more. Maybe we phase in the lockdown and so we can phase it out too. We, let's, let's, let's measure twice and cut once. We're crazy. We're killing grandma and grandpa. 
And now the guy whose work uh, all these uh, the, the lockdown decisions were made is saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, in retrospect, uh, we should have probably uh, not chosen such a crude measure in response to COVID-19. And he just goes about his merry way, waiting for the next pandemic to offer his next models. You know, this has become a very well orchestrated attempt to create I think almost a sort of, and again, I find this very much in parallel with the Middle Ages, the sense of apocalypse, that the world is coming to an end. And if we don't do this, 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 and this, mm. you know, the sort of Greta Thunberg view of the world right. has become very mainstream. It's, you know, I'm not going to argue whether, you know, I mean, I think there is clearly a, a problem with pollution and climate probably, you know, has been affected by this. I, I wouldn't doubt it. But how do you solve it? How extreme is it? Are we going to see the kind of things, you know, go and play an Al Gore speech of 10 years ago and what he predicted? And you'll find that the, you know, things have been exaggerated. You know, there's a natural tendency in the media to exaggerate things in order to get attention. I mean, one of the great ironies of this at the end of the day is by having helped create a economic catastrophe of sorts, Many of the people in the media are going to end up losing their job. No, Chris Cuomo is not going to lose his job. Right. And Wolf Blitzer is not going to lose his job. And, and Tucker Carlson is not going to lose his job. But, you know, who is going to lose his job is, is, is the 28-year-old and the 25-year-olds. I, 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 I get interviewed a lot by these young reporters because I've written a lot about millennials. The numbers of them who have lost their jobs, who have been – I remember some young woman, she'd just been laid off. She's, she's – living in a studio apartment in Stuyvesant town and hasn't essentially been outside for three months. So I mean, it, what's weird is many of the people who are going to be suffering from this are the very people who have participated in creating these conditions. I mean, it's, you know, I guess as you get older, you know, irony is, is you know, is something that you kind of get to enjoy. And I think that that's very much what we you know what we now see we see the results um uh, being quite negative you know is this idea that well if we you know like uh, the massachusetts attorney general saying well you know it's like a forest fire you know you you get new growth because of the burning it you're attorney general do you understand that if <laughs> the basic social contract no longer exists in other words i own a house or i want to go you know shopping with my with my wife, that I have some degree of rights not to be accosted by, you know, some crazy person on the street or not to have, um, you know, not to have a, a purse snatched or, or in all those things that we that you need for a civil society. You know, I always find interesting, much more socialist societies like I did a lot of work in Singapore, which has a, some degree of a socialist society. Um, <laughs> And, and certainly traditional social societies, and certainly China, they would never allow this kind of behavior. I mean, forget about it. You wouldn't even think about it. Well, it's also, it's really a telling statement, too, that you you view uh, the, the Massachusetts Attorney General, for example, it's really instructive. You view uh, your fellow citizens of, of certain, in, within certain strata as tinder for a controlled burn. Uh, right. It's just it's remarkable. It's a remarkable statement. It's so insightful uh, in terms of the mindset. 
He is Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute. His new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, now out from Encounter Books. Joel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Another night of uh, violence in certain neighborhoods and certain cities. Outgrowths of the agitation following the George Floyd murder, even after... Uh, New charges were brought against the Minneapolis police officers who were on the scene in uh, New York. Knifeman stabs New York cop in the neck, grabs his gun, shoots two other police in Brooklyn. 24-year-old Philadelphia man dead after trying to blow up an ATM during riots in Philadelphia, which has been one of the worst cities. Can't even bring themselves to uh, say that uh, a business owner defending his business from an intruder was... uh, legitimate, frankly, apologize that the police couldn't have provided the protection that that business owner deserves. But nonetheless, uh, this is drawing uh, some very different responses. And I'll tell you, maybe one of the the nice things about the digital age and uh, social media for all of the uh, criticism that it takes, some of it uh, certainly warranted, you do get to hear a lot of voices you probably wouldn't otherwise hear. So uh, a couple of voices that maybe representative of the uh, divide in the nation. Here's a woman in Philadelphia, since we were talking about Philadelphia, black woman, chiding Black Lives Matter protesters, including the <laughs> the guilty white kids uh, going along with the uh, chanting for what's happening in Philly. Our black Lives Matter! But you only show up when a white person killed a black person! But every day, we kill each other! Where are you? They are committing domestic acts of terrorism. These are Americans. These are not people in Syria. These are not people in Iran or Afghanistan. You have Americans committing acts of domestic terrorism. So hell yeah, the military is coming to town, motherfucker. All right. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, that's a woman who wants the military to come to town in Philly. Here's a woman stops her car, noticing a black woman, noticing three white girls scrubbing graffiti off a federal building. And uh, this is that uh, exchange. Why are you guys removing Black Lives Matter's graffiti? We're trying to take care of it. Yeah, we tried over there and it wasn't coming off. It's still in the coming off. But why do you want that to come off? Well, I don't it's in the federal building. Yeah, it's just the vandals. But so you don't care about black lives then? That's what this. Uh, not enough to leave up a message. Right. Not not a great way to use your white privilege, ladies. Not a great. That's disgusting. Cleaning uh, graffiti off a federal building is disgusting. Take pride in pride in your city. Uh, making no comment on the BLM graffiti, the substance of it, just cleaning it is racist. It's disgusting. Um, Tell me where the common ground exists between uh, the woman in Philly 
and the woman who finds cleaning graffiti off a federal building is disgusting. Where, where, where do you find that common ground? Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We've had this discussion before, and it hasn't been part of the media coverage, generally speaking, of the protesting, much less the rioting. And, of course, the media doesn't distinguish between the two. But there was this and has been this movement afoot called Blexit, black people leaving the Democrat Party, trying to prompt reconsideration. You don't have to identify as a Republican, but at least identify as an independent and start making different choices because what have we seen play itself out over the last week? In part, we've seen a reminder of 50 years of the failed leftist model of governance in big urban centers in this country. That model propagated by Democrats. I think 50 years is enough of a probationary period to make an assessment on performance. And if that model isn't working, and it continues to be advanced by one group of people, and you just switch out whoever uh, is going to be the D representative at City Hall, then maybe it's time to start thinking about different representatives altogether, both at City Hall, governor's mansions, in state legislatures, in the White House. Kate Stinson uh, posted this video on TikTok, and uh, because I'm so current and hip, I caught it. Trump saying when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I don't know where y'all are from, but I'm from Texas, okay? That's not a race thing. That's a common sense thing. Looting is theft that usually has violence involved. I don't know anyone in my state that thinks that's a smart idea. Because you best believe I'm going to protect me and mine any day, any time. And we don't take too kind of people threatening our property either. But here's the great thing. If you're not trespassing or stealing anything, you remove yourself from that situation of getting shot. It's really not rocket science. Kate Stinson is the content creator at The Standard, state director of Blexit, Texas, and host of the Southern Oreo. Kate Stinson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so uh, what, what's it like in Texas, you know, in, in the work that you do in terms of are your friends and professional colleagues, are they watching what's happened over the last week around the country and saying, we got to think differently about our politics, perhaps, because I don't want to be aligned with people or being perceived to be aligned with people who are committing acts of violence. Well, Texas is a, as you guys know, we're a very very proud state, and we are definitely um, being affected by the very clear division that is happening. Dallas has some very unfortunate um, occurrences, and a lot of our major cities um, here in Houston, I mean, our freeways were shut down. So we're definitely being impacted by these riots. However, I will say my immediate surroundings, my immediate circle, you know, we do not condone this violence. We do not tolerate it. And it is not fear that is being instilled. It is anger. It is upset. And it's not a matter of 
our anger with the police per se, it's our anger with these riots are hurting our community. These riots are hurting our own people that in no way, shape or form have done any wrong. So yes, I do think that the people of Texas are upset, are ready for the violence to come to an end and we are have no problem coming together um, to make that statement very, very clear. So even in Texas though, what's the sort of the pushback you receive from your age demographics as well as as racial demographics, you're a young person. What's the pushback you get when people say, Kate, you know, what the hell are you doing because X, Y, and Z? The backlash from my fellow African-Americans in the African-American community has been astronomical. I definitely do have support, but my support of Trump, my support of this being the wrong way to handle it, you know, they've called everything from a race traitor to whitewash to every name in the book that you can possibly think of that is racially degrading, simply because the fact that I do not condone this is the way to get answers. Well, we've tried silent protesting before, but we've also tried riding before, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. And many people keep referencing Colin Kaepernick's kneeling during the national anthem as our way of peacefully protesting. Well, to me, I I didn't find that to be a peaceful protest because out of all times for us to peacefully protest police brutality, the kneeling was happening at a time that was respecting and honoring the people who lay down their lives to protect the American people. For me, that is absolute blatant disrespect to anyone that has lost someone while they are serving anyone that is serving just as a police officer. We are blatantly disrespecting them when we're kneeling during that time when we should be standing, honoring the people that fought for our freedom, the freedom to our constitutional right to have freedom of speech, and we decided to use that freedom to disrespect them. So I do not agree with the way that this is being handled, and and because of that, um, I guess you could say that I have been disowned in many lights by my own race, but I have also had many people of my own race look at me and say, thank you. We needed this voice. We don't agree with this either. But a lot of people are afraid to speak up about it because of the backlash that follows. What, what about your age demographic? Though? I mean, you're, you're a younger person because because there's nothing more entertaining and disquieting for me than when uh, white champagne socialists we were just talking about a minute ago, the white left comes in and tells black people how they should feel and how they should think and how they should be offended. Yeah. So young white people in your age demographic, right? How they talk to you about your politics. A lot of, and I condone any race speaking on Black Lives Matter. I condone any race talking about this because it does affect the American people as a whole. This whole thing affects the American people as a whole. However, I will say for the people from the left who the left preaches to be tolerant, they preach to be expecting, uh, accepting, they preach to be this inclusive racial rights, First Amendment rights, LGBT rights, all these amazing things. But then you have me, a African-American female who speaks out against it, and I'm instantaneously met with, well, you're a traitor of your own people. Um, You don't understand what your black sisters are going through. You don't understand why they're angry or why they're mad. You should be out here protesting with us. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, so all of a sudden, because I believe in the terminology of all lives matter versus black lives matter, because keep in, keep in mind that black lives are included in all lives matter. Now you are discrediting me as an African-American woman, even though if we're specifically, specifically talking about the Caucasian, you know, white liberal left that comes at me with this, I have been there with a lot of backlash. Oh, you are a traitor to your black sisters. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself that you're not standing with these people. And a lot of those people don't even understand what it is that they're protesting. They don't understand what they're standing for. They simply are standing with that community because it is something else that promotes the generalized 
action of the left. But if you challenge that, it completely contradicts their whole message of acceptance and inclusivity and, and wanting to have right. that freedom of speech and voice. So, uh, Kate, did you have a, a road to Damascus journey or did you were, did you grow up as a, a conservative or an independent thinker? Is this a, the product of your your parents or is this something that you came to through experience? Not at all. Um, my my mother, um, uh, my dad is diehard Texan. He is very much conservative. Um, that those are always in his beliefs. My parents were divorced when I was five. Um, my mother is a diehard Democrat, and I love her dearly, and those are her views. Um, but I was not. Up until about three months after Trump was elected, I hated the man. I wanted nothing to do with him. I thought it was the most, nope, I want nothing to do with this. This man is a racist. He's a sexist. Da, 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 da. And I was very much a sheep to the media. I did not do my research, and I'll own that. You know, I, I was following what I was being told by my community. I was, I was following what I was being told by the media. I did not do my own research. And I got to a point where I was so angry with him as a president, and then I realized that, you know what, he's been elected, okay? I'm going to have to accept that at some point. He's been elected. He's now the president of the United States, and he's my president. I can either sit here, and I can be upset, and I can spew hate, or I can do research on what it is that this man is doing. Because I, I have I, – I started being – challenged on well why do you hate him and though i was being challenged by predominantly caucasian people it caused this stir in my head to say well they have a really valid point why am i mad i don't even really know why i'm mad. i have no idea what he's done hmm. so when i stopped just following the media and stopped just following emotion and went and genuinely looked at this man's policies and genuinely started following what he was doing i started to realize this man is more for me and my community than the democratic party has ever been why am i against him why am i fighting him on this and, um, yeah, so it was, I have not always been a conservative and, and it was a, a step towards the truth when I started realizing that I have been used and the black community has been used as a political pawn for years now. And a lot of the, 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 the demographics, you know, of the African-American community does not analyze this. Again, a lot of us are following the media. We do not go back and analyze, okay, what has the Democratic Party done for us? I guarantee you a good majority of them have not researched what Trump has done for the black community. Let's look at his prison reform act, for example. Over 42 minorities released that were wrongly convicted, released, and over 96% of them were black. How can you tell me that a man who put that prison reform act in place is racist? It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. I was wondering if there was a conversion story, and um, that's a good one. Uh, that's a good intellectual curiosity. It's amazing what it can bring. Kate Stinson, content creator at The Standard, involved with the Plexit Texas movement, and a host at the Southern Oreo. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, guys. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show how will higher education change post COVID 19 it's a discussion we've been having for several weeks now and um there are some indications from some colleges that are taking the lead, like uh, our friend Mitch over at uh, Purdue, Hillsdale College. Yeah, but all of this, it's not just whether or not they open and what attending classes looks like and so forth. It's the campus life. It's the price point for what you're getting and how that is going to change. 
It's the goodwill or ill will that comes out of this pandemic with families who were fighting with colleges and universities about refunds for having a very different experience the second semester than they did the first semester and that they anticipated for the second semester. But part of it is not just COVID related too, the varsity blues scandal and also the politicization of college campuses that, you know, just continues to escalate in these times and certainly will coming out of all of this civil unrest. For more on all of those topics, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Petrelli. He's the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and author of How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. Uh, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be back with you. We uh, start with a study that uh, Fordham Institute uh, produced with your direction, which is looking at salaries. You know, that's another whole topic of conversation with higher education, connecting college students and what they're paying versus the money they expect to earn and their ability to pay back uh, some of the student loans that are piled up. And so you look at how it's not just uh, what college you go to, but it's actually where you live that drives your earning power. And uh, what are some of the top lines of what you found? That's right. You know, we've known forever that on average, people who go to college and get that four-year degree make more money than people who don't. But when you get below the averages and you see it plays out very differently based on geography. And when you consider the cost of living in some of these places that are much lower, turns out that you can go much further with just, say, a two-year technical degree or a one-year industry credential than you would in a place like Chicago. And so part of the point is to say to young people, hey, when you're trying to decide what kind of education you want to get, uh, whether you want to invest four years and all that money, you should, of course, think about what you want to make. You should think about what you want to do, but also where do you want to live? And we shouldn't be driving everybody into four-year degrees as if every place is like these big, huge metro areas, because most of America is not like that at all. And it's really going to be interesting because, you know, that's one of the other unknowns at this point, the attractiveness of big urban centers after the pandemic and whether or not you will see more people choose the suburbs or the exurbs or rural areas, smaller communities as places to live uh, versus the big cities and how that will uh, change pay scales across different sectors. Yeah, absolutely. You know, fascinating that so many of these Silicon Valley firms now are saying that they're never going to go back to offices. They're going to let people work remotely. And that means that people could leave, say, the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley uh, to much more affordable places. And so this is something we've got to take all of these issues together, you know, that the, the cost of living, how much does it cost to get that education? And yes, what is that pay bump going to be depending on where you live? A lot of the, those of us that live in these big metro areas and that are influencing the way we think about education, I live in the D.C. area. It is certainly true that here you see on the one hand people making these really high salaries with college degrees, but a high cost of living, so it doesn't go as far. And then everybody else working in the service sector uh, that's making much less. And so you think, well, oh, my goodness, if, if I care about a young person, I'm going to make sure they get that college degree. Well, we don't have much in terms of middle class jobs. We don't have manufacturing. We don't have oil and gas exploration. We don't have these other opportunities where somebody with technical skills, say, could make a good living. But many places in the country do have those opportunities, and those places cost a lot less. And some of these uh, data points about uh, the premium you get from a college education, 
even if you uh, discount the, the student loans you have to pay back, which is often not included in these studies, seems to me a bit overstated from another perspective, too, which is, look, a lot of these kids going to college, they would be successful whether they went to college or not because of social networks, because of the positions their mom and or dad hold in society. They're always going to make their way and be fine. And so there's a bit of self-selection that goes on. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And hey, you know, when you dig into our study, what you find is a lot of this college earnings premium, it's really being driven by a relatively small number of people making sky high salaries. Mm-hmm. You know, and these are the people who are working in, in corporate America and these senior jobs uh, where they're really getting paid well. Uh, and, and these are the kinds of people that you're probably talking about. I mean, th- these are generally not the first-generation college students. These are maybe kids whose families already had a lot of wealth and had those, those connections. And so if you're talking about somebody who you know, is going to maybe not the most prestigious university versus doing a technical program or getting more technical skills, uh, you know, then I think you start to, to say that you, you really got to look hard. Is that college degree worth it? It may be. And depending on what that young person wants to do, I don't want to discourage people to go to college, uh, but they've got to really consider all these different factors. And geography should be one of those factors that they think about. Right. And, and oh, by, by the way, a lot of those high salaries with people with all sorts of, uh, you know, alphabet uh, acronyms beyond uh, after their name are in government making uh, six-figure salaries with seven-figure guaranteed pensions, too. And that's sort of an underappreciated aspect of this as well. In a lot of positions, I would argue, in government, where you don't need the credentials, in quotation marks, that some bring to the table. But it's all sort of, you know, it's, it, it, for example, like with teachers at, at the K-12 through level, the step increases if you go back and get a master's degree in education yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. That, to me, is a scam. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, in, in a lot of industries, in government, but also in the private sector, you know, you look at a lot of jobs that require a four-year college degree, and you look close and you say, is that really necessary? And in some of these cases, it's, it's really not, you know, but, but we kind of get lazy, and these, uh, we say, well, well, it'll be a way to just screen out people, but that's exactly what it does, is it screens out people who might be able to do that job quite well, mm-hmm. uh, and it forces them to go get that credential. It just, you know, further beefs up this, this college industry. So, you know, we need to push on that side as well and really ask, hey, does a given job, why, why does it need a four-year degree? You know, might be a lot of jobs out there that, that you really, what, what you need are people with skills. You know, can they read and write and, and compute? Uh, can they work with people? Can they uh, get things done? Uh, none of that requires or should require a four-year degree. Uh, as we um, witness, uh, you know, the clockwork orange on the streets of our urban centers uh, at present, uh, I want to end on a note of optimism. What is it that you see that you're most encouraged by in terms of changes uh, that are coming, change that is afoot at the at the uh, higher ed level? You know, I, I think that the backlash in terms of cost and value uh, is is really going to cause a reckoning here. And I think what you see, for example, you mentioned your friend Mitch, that's right, at Purdue University, being able to hold the line on tuition increases to increase the number of students that they serve and to really focus on the value. I mean, look, I, I think that's an incredible success story, and I think you're going to see other, other schools either emulate what, uh, what uh, Purdue is doing or you're going to see them go out of business. And I think on the whole, that's going to be healthy. He is Michael Petrelli. He's the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and author of 
How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. Michael Petrelli, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. There's no time left for you. No time left for you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, played this clip yesterday, but I think it needs to be heard again. The point really needs to be driven home, consistent with our conversation earlier in the program with uh, Victor Davis Hanson, about just how political all of this is. Uh, politics, a, you know, a discussion of justice is just politics by other means. A discussion of science is politics by other means. A, deli- a, a discussion of uh, inequity as politics by other means and politics as religion a place of worship at the altar of politics bethesda maryland hundreds of people with their hands raised like they were in a house of worship enjoying one another's fellowship and repeating these words about racism anti-blackness or violence I will use my voice in the most uplifting way possible. And do everything in my power to educate my community. I will love my black neighbors the same as my white ones. All right, now everybody go in peace to call anybody who disagrees with you a racist. Because the, that's the contradiction that's pre- present there. Give you another example of uh, uh, racial justice as just politics by other means. Planned Parenthood tweeting out yesterday, or the, uh, maybe it was the day before. We're devastated, grieving, and outraged by violence against black lives. <laughs> we must continue to demand accountability, justice, and an end to the inequity that continues to define every moment of life for black America from the racist institutions that uphold white supremacy. Boy, talk about living in a glass mill. This is an organization who locates its abortion facilities in majority-minority neighborhoods on purpose because it's imperative for expectant black mothers to continue to abort their children at more than a 50% clip in order for Planned Parenthood's business model to work. And uh, we're getting lectured about uh, institutions of white supremacy and violence against black lives. We had this conversation yesterday uh, in part too. Uh, black lives in the womb, black lives in nursing homes. No conversation whatsoever about black lives in those stages of life. Why? No political capital be gained? For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, host of the Pathway to Victory, national radio and television ministry, and author of the just-released Praying for America, 40 Inspiring Stories and Prayers for Our Nation. This is timely. Uh, Pastor Jeffress, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Well, we could certainly use uh, inspiring stories and prayers for our nation during this time of uh, strife on a number of fronts, couldn't we? 
what we can, and uh, that's what I do in this book, Praying for America. There are 40 chapters, only a few pages each, but I begin, Dan, by sharing a true story from American history about how faith has made a difference in the history of our nation. By the way, these are stories your children and grandchildren will never hear in the public schools. I mean, they're taught this revisionist system of history that says America was founded by secularists whose overriding goal was to build an unscalable wall around a society that would keep faith from seeping into any part of public life. I mean, that version of American history belongs right up there with George Washington and the cherry tree. It didn't happen. And I show in story after story how our nation was founded not exclusively but predominantly by Christians who believed that the future success of our nation depended upon our fidelity to God, his son Jesus Christ, and his word. And uh, so I start with those stories, and then I suggest a specific prayer for 40 different areas of American life, praying for our political leaders, for our families, our churches, for our first responders. And I really believe, Dan, with everything going on in the world today, that if Christians would start praying for our nation like they never had before, we could see a miracle take place. Well, I want to pick it up right there because it seems to me that that could be some common ground to be forged across racial lines and every other demographic, including uh, uh, you know, different faith traditions. But, but it, it's not being. And I, I just wonder about uh, the interfaith path to peaceful pluralism. We'll explore that with Dr. Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the 15,000-member First Baptist Dallas uh, Church and host of Pathway to Victory, as well as the author of the just released Praying for America, 40 Inspiring Stories and Prayers for Our Nation. More right after this. It's a shame the way you mess around with the man. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Pastor Robert Jeffress, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas and host of Pathway to Victory National Radio Television Ministry and author of the just released book, Praying for America, 40 Inspiring Stories and Prayers for Our Nation. And uh, Pastor, you were describing those before the break. And I, I wonder why we're not seeing um, more leadership from clergy as we see the unrest in cities, just as there were questions about the leadership from clergy during the lockdowns and perhaps, I think more than arguably, unconstitutional infringements on religious liberty during uh, the lockdowns in most of the states with respect to COVID-19. It seems to me that these are the ties that bind our respect for uh, people's differing faith traditions um, and the commonality of those faith traditions. Maybe that is a pathway to uh, the, some semblance of the unity we desire. It very well may be, but I think, frankly, Dan, the clergy have fallen down in their responsibilities to be not just people who pray for America, but who speak truth to America. 
we shouldn't be muzzled by political correctness. We shouldn't be muzzled by any particular ideology. Our sole job as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to proclaim God's word. And we need to say, yes, we need to say racism is a sin. To hate a man because of the color of his skin is to hate the God who made him. But that's not the only truth we need to share. We also need to share that God hates lawlessness. First John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. And by the way, neither racism nor lawlessness is the root problem in America. It is a symptom of the root problem. It's not the root problem. The root problem is sin, rebellion against God. And that's why the starting place for racial healing in our country, the uh, starting place for law and order is for people to return to God and to fear God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a pastor on the south side of Chicago where I live, uh, Pastor Corey Brooks, who started a, um, a congregation uh, several years ago in very difficult neighborhoods in, on the south side of the city. And he said, you know, basically what's, what's happened in Chicago, like a lot of other big cities, has regressed our work to build these communities, to build our neighborhoods, to extend opportunities to people who haven't enjoyed them. It's regressed that for years. And so, you know, what are we doing to ourselves? And it just doesn't seem like there's enough leadership, as you mentioned, demanding that sort of reflection on the choices being made. Well, I think that's right. And frankly, I hope my book, Praying for America, could be uh, maybe a tiny spark that God would use to encourage people to reconnect to God. I mean, he is the ultimate answer for our problems. And if we're obedient to him and follow his commands, there will be no racism in America. There'll be no lawlessness. God hates both. And uh, I just think uh, if we try to treat the symptoms without treating the root disease, uh, we're not going to succeed. How concerned are you that politics is taking over as the national religion? Yeah, you know, politics is a loaded word. You know, people say Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. Well, you know, the word politics comes from a Latin word that means to influence. And frankly, I think we should try to influence the culture in which we live and use God's uh, word and his prescription for society to do so. I think the problem is when we allow politics rather than God to be our God and become slaves to some particular ideology. Look, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I vote for people according to how well their policies align with what I believe God's Word teaches. And I think that's the responsibility of every Christian. And it seems to me that, too, part of what's lost in this um, this demand for people to bend the knee and, and uh, to, to make amends in some sort of uh, political way is uh, just a... a um, a lack of appreciation for true contrition, a lack of appreciation for how a yes. man's heart can change. And I, I was struck by this when it was announced yesterday that uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam is removing the statue of Robert E. Lee near uh, downtown, uh, near the downtown in, in Richmond, Virginia, because I, I remember the Lee story from history. The uh, day after he surrendered to Grant in 1865, he attended St. Paul's Episcopal Church and um, this was a very tense moment uh, because uh, slaves had been required to sit in the balcony in the rear of the church, uh, segregated from the whites. And that changed after uh, the slaves were freed and uh, the Anglican priest and the congregation froze, not knowing what to do next when 
uh, when when, when uh, a newly freed slave strode to the front of the church, knelt beside whites at the altar to drink from the same cup and eat from the same bread, and Robert E. Lee walked up to the front and knelt beside that former slave. So, um, you know, uh, this is not to make excuses for Robert E. Lee or for anybody else, but it is to talk about a story of uh, contrition. Yeah, that's right. And ultimately, Dan, I am not responsible for the sins of Robert E. Lee. I'm responsible for the sins of Robert J. Jeffress. And I've got plenty of my own to answer for. You know, Tip O'Neill said all politics are local. Well, all sin is local, too. It begins with me. And and uh, just just in terms of um, the uh, the stories, you think that um, from your experience, uh, pastoring and and uh, and then also talking about this book and getting reader feedback, what's a story or two that uh, really sticks with people and they can't wait to share it on social media or or in church? Well, you know, one story I tell in the last next to the last chapters, one of the things we ought to pray for is a spiritual revival in America. And I tell the story of a layman who worked on Wall Street, Jeremiah Lanthier. He was there in 1857, and he was concerned about the spiritual barrenness of the culture in which he lived. And so he decided to organize a prayer meeting, put out posters everywhere. He had a grand total of six people that showed up. He was discouraged, but he said, I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, Several weeks later, there was a major stock market crash. Banks all over New York uh, closed for two months. People were panicked, and that six-member prayer meeting turned into 7,000 people who met every day, seven days a week, praying for God's help. It sparked a revival not only in New York City, but it spread to Chicago and throughout America. And it's just a reminder, Dan, Mm. that what is in the news is not necessarily the most important thing. God can use this pandemic. He can use this racial unrest. He can use it for a great spiritual revival. In our own church, we've seen 18,000 people profess Christ as Savior during the last 10 weeks while our church was shut down and people watching online. So what Satan means for evil, God can use for good. He is Dr. Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, host of Pathway to Victory, national radio and television ministry, and the book, Praying for America, 40 inspiring stories like the one he just told, and prayers for our nation. Pastor Jeffress, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Now I'm going to show off my range going from uh, Pastor Robert Jeffress to uh, these stories. Coronavirus, this uh, from um, our merry friends across the pond. Not so merry, perhaps, after this. Having sex in your own home with someone from a different household is illegal as of Monday in England. The change to the law introduced that bans two people from different households in England gathering in an indoor private place during the coronavirus lockdown. Has Gretchen Whitmer fled to England and deposed Boris Johnson? A related story, Harvard University. A new study from Harvard University researchers concludes that having relations with another carries some risk for transmitting COVID-19. Uh-huh. Recommends, among other practices, wearing a face mask while having those relations. And this is not like in the eyes wide shut, you know, role playing varietal. This is in like the antiseptic surgical mask. Almost we've gone full naked gun here with the body condoms. 
approach. The research published in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine ranked various relational situations based on how likely the participants are to catch coronavirus while in the act. Uh huh. And again, uh, sex with people other than those with whom one is quarantined is not recommended, but not against the law like it is in England. Uh, here, here for the U.S. Constitution, I suppose. I got an idea for both in terms of uh, monitoring this activity for your uh, officious minders in governments in the West, whether in England or here. Stormtroopers. Did you see this? Walt Disney World Shopping District, Disney Springs, which reopened May 20th in Orlando. In order to minimize coronavirus-related risks, new rules requiring face coverings, temperature checks, and social distancing measures, all ascientific, but okay. Uh, helping enforce the rules that uh, Disney World Shopping District imposed on patrons, stormtroopers from the Star Wars universe. So you have the fictional stormtroopers, and then you have you know, real people in governor's mansions around the country, legislative advisors around the country who are aspiring stormtroopers. But yeah, maybe have uh, the stormtroopers also monitoring people with respect to their um, personal practices with others in their household on a... Uh, daily basis that could be the way to close the circle on all that okay getting back to my range speaking uh, getting back to showing my range and only my range after um, straying from pastor jeffress now we come full circle and let's come back uh, making uh, amends for uh, doing those uh, sex and covid stories that actually could be a series or a soap opera i want to recommend again patterns of evidence i recommended uh, pastor jeffress's book now let me recommend Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, a documentary presenting convincing evidence the biblical account of the Exodus is, in fact, true. This is a filmmaker Tim Mahoney's work product from having journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results are monumental. You can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another installment of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.